1: NCC. It's good to see you this morning. It's good to be with you, and it's good to be able to continue in worship today as we open God's word together. Uh, it's always a privilege and an honor to be able to open God's word and to preach uh, here on Sunday mornings, and so I'm thankful for it, and I'm thankful for you. Also, I want to just as well just say thank you, Adam and Emily. Thank you for leading us so well this morning. Can we just thank them together? Um, I was, I was backstage singing, and I'm just sitting there going, like, we could just stay here for a while. Like, this would be good. We could just do this today. Um, we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 12 this morning, and so you can go ahead and move there. We're in week two of a series called Gratitude, a biblical guide for navigating the holidays. And don't we all want some help navigating the holidays? Holiday seasons are exciting, they can be joyful, they can also be hard. And today we're going to look at that tension. Last week, uh, Pastor Matt gave us a definition of gratitude from one of his favorite pastors and one of my favorite pastors, hopefully one of your favorite pastors, Brandon Marshall. Uh, Gratitude is the choice to respond to God's goodness shown or God's goodness expected gratitude is the choice not an emotion or a feeling but a conscious behavior to respond remember we learned last week that God moves first not us we respond to God's goodness to who he is what we just sang about not what I may feel about him in a moment We respond to God's goodness shown, what he has done in the past, how he has proved himself faithful over and over again, and God's goodness expected, what he has promised to do in the future. In short, to cultivate a heart of biblical gratitude is to choose to trust in the fact that God is God and God is good no matter what. Now, some of you may remember that back from earlier this year when we studied the book of Habakkuk. We learned this truth together, that God is God and God is good no matter what. It's an important truth to hang to as we think about cultivating a heart of gratitude. The prophet Jeremiah in Lamentations chapter 3 talks about God's goodness shown and God's goodness expected. Here's how he describes it. The loving kindness of Yahweh indeed never ceases. Isn't that good? God's loving kindness for you never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Yahweh is my portion. He is all that I need, says my soul. Therefore, I wait for him. Yahweh, the Lord, is our portion. He is all we need. He is where we place our hope and our trust And so we choose to have hearts that are full of gratitude, full of thankfulness for who he is and for what he has done. We wait on him because he moves first and we respond. But cultivating a heart of gratitude helps us to see Jesus rightly and it helps us to see others rightly well as well. But we struggle with that, don't we? Especially in a culture that is, is very Western, very individualistic, it's hard for us to pause and to truly be thankful. And I believe that we will never have gratitude for that which we feel entitled to. We will never feel or have gratitude for that which we feel entitled to. And let's be real in our culture, we feel entitled to a lot, don't we? We feel like we deserve the best. We feel like we're entitled to have gifts under a tree or a turkey on a table. We may even think to ourselves, you know I'm entitled to the best because I'm a pretty good person. Or at least I'm not as bad as that other guy. Why do we struggle with entitlement in this way? I believe it's because we view ourselves too highly and our sin too lowly. I believe we struggle with entitlement because we see ourselves too highly and our sin too lowly. And I know we're early in the sermon, but if I can be candid, the only thing that we deserve is death and eternal punishment due to our sin. We are entitled to hardship, We are entitled to sickness. We are entitled to death and eternal separation from God in a real place called hell because of our sin, and because we don't see that, because we don't view that rightly, we so lowly view the grace of God that we have received, and we don't view it highly enough. When is the last time that you paused? in a general week, and we thought about our sin, how much we just reek of depravity, how filthy and wicked our sinful hearts are, and then in light of that, we paused and we praised God for his unfathomable mercy, that he would look on a wretch like us and choose grace and mercy. When is the last time we took inventory of our hearts and we were thankful for that? Or is this just the motion that we run through? It can quickly become that if we don't pause. We don't choose to cultivate hearts of gratitude. We will never have gratitude toward that which we feel entitled to. In church, we are not entitled to the good news of the gospel We can't do anything to earn our salvation. We do not deserve our salvation. We are dead in our sins, but for the grace of God. And so, friend, if you were here today and you've never experienced that grace, would you repent of your sin and turn to faith in Christ? There is good news in the fact that you are dead in your sin, but Jesus died so that you could be made alive in him. Many of you in this room have come to know Jesus of your Lord. You've experienced that unmerited, undeserved grace, but how quickly we can forget. How quickly does it become commonplace? How often do we say, God, you are all that I need. Yahweh is my portion. Or do we view ourselves too highly and our sin too lowly? Church, cultivating a heart of gratitude, again, helps us to see Jesus rightly. It helps us to see others rightly. It is not easy. It is not simple. But it is very, very worth it. And at no time of the year can it be more easy or more difficult than the holidays to begin to cultivate a heart of gratitude. The holidays often bring joy and fellowship as we gather with those that we know and love. We sit at tables like this with our friends, with our family, and there's joy, and there's laughter, and there's celebration, and it's easy when the table is full and when the family is there to be thankful, isn't it? It's easy when everything is going well, when the gifts are under the tree, when everything is as it should be. But for some of us, as we think about the holidays and we think about this idea of gratitude, and you think about a table, you don't think of a full table, but you think of an empty seat, a seat that may be empty for the first time this year. And so when you think of the holidays, you don't think of gratitude, you think of grief. For others, you think of that seat that's going to be full, and you kind of wish it wasn't. because you know the conflict that's gonna come from it. You know the conversations that'll be had, the differences of opinion, the yelling, the frustration. You're anticipating that moment to just get through the meal so we can be done with this. And then still there's others of you that as you think of the holiday table You think that you're going to be the only place setting there. And you feel very alone when you think about the holidays. For me personally, when I think about the holidays this year and for many years now, um, they're pretty hard. Many of you know both my parents passed of cancer some years ago. And even at a table that's full with my family and my in-laws and my, my girls, there's laughter and joy. There's still sometimes these small moments that just break through into the chasms of my heart and bring grief in ways that I wouldn't expect. And so I don't know what your table looks like this year. I don't know what you bring to the table. But I know this, that every household has its own hardships, Every household has its own hardships because it's made up of sinners like you and I, right? From the youngest child that is wonderstruck with awe at a gift under the tree to the oldest matriarch knitting matching sweaters for the entire family, we are all sinners, We are sinful people with sinful hearts trying to manage expectations and navigating the holidays with other sinful people with their own sinful hearts. And it seems that sometimes the holidays feels a lot more like walking on eggshells than walking in a winter wonderland, doesn't it? It can leave our hearts both festive and frustrated, grateful and grief-stricken, light and lonely. And we read passages like James 1 where he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. And we kind of feel like telling James to just put a sock in it, if we're honest. Like, you don't know my hardship, James. You don't know my grief. You don't know what I bring to the table. And that's a tension that we can feel around the holidays because we can begin to believe the lie that just because grief is prevalent, that gratitude has to be absent. And that's not true. That's not true. Today we're going to look at a chapter in the life of a father who has lost his son. And the season of grief that he experiences where we can see that grief and gratitude are not mutually exclusive, but rather they are two sides of the same coin. And sometimes our greatest grief can cause us to know and understand our greatest gratitudes. So again, I don't know what you bring to the table today, but as we examine this passage, I want to be sensitive to the fact that for many of you, myself included, this is hard. When you think about the holidays and you think about grief during this time, it is very hard. And so if I could just offer us two words of comfort before we dive into this text, Uh, the psalmist writes in Psalm 34 verse 18, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. It again in Psalm 147 says that he is the one who heals the brokenhearted and who binds up their wounds. Our God is with us in our grief, and he calls us to a place of rest and hope in him. Look at Jesus' words in Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so before we continue any farther and get into 2 Samuel 12, I'd ask you if you're willing and able if we could bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment. And if you would, if you'd place your palms upward in front of you just in a physical posture of receiving. Let's pause for a moment and just in silence and rest in those truths about our God. That he is with us, that we can rest in him, and that we can learn from him. That he would give us wisdom as we choose to cultivate hearts of gratitude as we respond to a God who is with us in our grief. Just pause for a moment. Amen. In 2 Samuel 12, we see an account of King David, stricken with grief. And as we navigate this passage, I hope to provide for us some insights from this part of David's life that help us as we grieve to cultivate hearts of gratitude. But we must remember as we look at this passage that not everything that Scripture describes does it also prescribe for us. Okay? Okay. And so grief, there is not a one-size-fits-all handbook where it's just, hey, just do A, B, and C, and you're good, right? It doesn't work that way for all of us. It is different. Grief can, I've often described grief this way. It's kind of like a new kid at school that you're not sure if it wants to be your best friend and help you through a season or if it's really just trying to steal the Twinkies out of your lunchbox and make your day horrible. Okay, so grief is kind of that way. You never really know what it's gonna do. But there are elements to King David's grief that provide for us some biblical models and handles that we can hold to, and I'm going to hope to uncover those for us today. So some context for where we are. This passage comes after David has abused his authority and acted on his lust to sin sexually with Bathsheba. This is the wife of one of his military leaders, Uriah. And we're not really sure how quickly time passes in this passage, but what we find is that David discovers that Bathsheba is pregnant with his child, and so he plans to covertly cover up his sin by setting up a date night between Uriah and his wife Bathsheba. That doesn't go the way that he intended it to go, if you know what I mean. And so to change things up, he sends Uriah to the front lines of battle to be murdered again, to cover up his sin. And then David swoops in to comfort the mourning wife of his lost military hero. And David tries to play the good guy. He takes her under his wing. But what David has tried to do in secret, God knows deeply. And so God sends a prophet, Nathan, to David to confront him over his sin. When he does this, David realizes the weight and the the heaviness of his sin, and he realizes that his desire to cover up his sin has completely failed. Let's look at him in verse 13. David confesses his sin, and he seeks forgiveness from God. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin, You shall not die. Already we see God's grace and his mercy. David is forgiven by God, but as always, our sin has consequences. And so where David has tried to be covert with his sin, God is going to bring about judgment for that sin in a way that is very overt. He's going to bring about the judgment and the consequences for that sin in a way that is very public. Verse 14 Nathan pronounces that judgment to David nevertheless because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord the child who is born to you shall die then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he the child became sick there is never a time in our lives When we choose to follow our hearts into sinful rebellion against a good and gracious God, that the consequence of our sin does not follow us. No matter how secret we may believe it to be, there are always consequences for our sin. And some of those consequences affect us personally. And others can affect those that we love. Look at verse 16. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. So this is the first thing that we can learn. In our grief, we must choose to respond to God's goodness shown. So as David grieves over his sin, as he grieves over what is happening to his son because of his sin, we see him returning to these ancient rhythms that draw him near to the heart of God. The Hebrew word translated here as sought means a prayerful search. It has an urgency, a longing for the seeking after God. And so when grief sends us reeling, we know that we can anchor back to the goodness of God shown. Why does David go to God in prayer for his child? It's already been pronounced to him the judgment has been told to him, your child is going to die. So why bother? Because David knows he still goes to God in prayer and fasting because he has seen God be faithful, be merciful, and be gracious over and over again throughout his life. He chooses to respond to God's goodness that has been shown to him. And so even though he has received an incredibly hard word from God, he still goes back to to God in prayer and fasting on behalf of his child because he knows that he can trust God. So in his grief, he turns to God in repentance and faith through prayer and fasting. Many also believe that it is during this period of mourning that David writes Psalm 51. Let's look at this together. Be gracious to me, O God, According to your loving kindness, according to the abundance of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and pure when you judge. Church, what I'm about to say is hard to hear. And so please know that it comes from a tender heart. I do not want you to hear this or receive it wrongly, so hang with me for a second. All grief is the result of sin. All grief is a result of sin. Whether that is due to the consequences of our personal sin, like it was here in this account of David's life, or if it is because of the fallen state of our sinful world. All grief exists because of our rebellion against God's goodness shown in his goodness expected. In the beginning in the garden of Eden, before the fall of mankind, grief wasn't even in the vocabulary vocabulary of humanity. It didn't exist before sin entered the picture. All grief is a result of sin. And then when Jesus returns to make all things new, like we sang this morning, to restore our broken world to the way that it was intended to be, grief is one of the things mentioned that he takes away forever. Look, in Revelation 21, verses 3 and 4, it reads, Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And then look at this, death will be no more. Grief, crying, pain will be no more. Can you imagine that? It's almost impossible, isn't it? To think that there will be a day when all of that will be gone that it will be no more because Jesus will make all things new. In your grief, we choose to respond to God's goodness shown, but also choose to respond to God's goodness expected. The results of sin in our world that bring about sickness, death, and bitterness, they have an end. They are temporary sorrows that have no power over our eternal King Jesus. So church, in your grief, look to the promise that our king has declared. He will make all things new. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more. What incredible hope. So what does this mean? Does it mean that when we face grief, we should just suck it up? We just bury it? Say, oh, it's no big deal. Jesus conquered it. I don't want to think about it. No, that's not at all. We have a bright hope for tomorrow in our living hope, Jesus, but we also have strength for today. Strength for today in in the rock of ages that we cling to. As waves of grief and sorrow try to pull us under, we have strength in the promise that our God is with us when our spirit is crushed. Do you remember the Psalms that we read as we began? that our Savior, as Isaiah 53 describes, was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and was acquainted with our grief. Jesus knows our grief and sorrow. He knows our loss and our hurt. He knows about the empty table. He knows about the empty seat. And he is with us in it. And in our grief, we can cultivate hearts of gratitude for the nearness of God to us as we look to his goodness shown and his goodness expected. But when, even when we do that, even when we pray and fast and we go to God and we're in the midst of our grief and we're cultivating these hearts of gratitude and we're trying to do it all right, it is not an absolute that God is going to intervene in the immediate moment and take away that grief, that sorrow, or that pain. It wasn't for David. Look at verse 18. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, behold, while the child was alive, we spoke to him and he didn't listen to us. How can we say to him, the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. After a week of sickness that had afflicted his son, a son that has never given a name, which for many leads us to believe that this happened very shortly after he was born. After a week of seeking after God and praying for mercy, a week It probably felt like an eternity because grief can do that, can't it? After a week of David doing all of the right things, setting his heart in order and seeking after God, the child died. Could God have been merciful? Yes. Did God have to be merciful? No. And that's a hard thing. It takes a lot of trust in our God who is good. Sometimes God uses the grief we experience to draw our hearts to him because he knows that they would not naturally run to him any other way. Would David have spent that week in prayer and fasting seeking after God if his son had not been sick? Maybe not. Would David have written the words of Psalm 151, wash away my iniquity, cleanse me from my sin? Maybe not. But there's something about grief that draws us to our knees in prayer, isn't it? Sometimes God uses the grief we experience to draw our hearts to him because he knows that we would not naturally run to him any other way. And that does not make him less God or less good. Because our greatest need in this life and in all eternity is him. Verse 19 But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? He said, He is dead. David's grief had been so heavy that his servants didn't even want to tell him that his son had died. This is a deep, deep grief. But in the verses that follow, we're going to see how David chooses to cultivate this heart of gratitude in the midst of his grief, not in place of his grief. That is important for us to grasp. This is not in place of his grief. David is still grieving in everything that we are about to read. There is still sorrow. The pain is still raw. This is in the midst of his grief. He chooses gratitude. Verse 20. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshiped. He then went to his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Then his servants said to him, what is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. David said, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. Again, he is looking to the goodness of God shown, that God might be gracious to him. But now he is dead, verse 23. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. In our grief, we must keep an eternal perspective. And this is hard, because we are living in a temporary world. But David's response to some could seem calloused, could seem confused, or even crazy. His servants question his behavior here. But David chooses gratitude In the midst of his grief, in three primary areas that we're gonna look at. He looks at he chooses gratitude physically, spiritually, and emotionally. So physically, we see that David gets up. He physically gets up off the floor where he's been lying in his tears in mourning and fasting. He cleans up. He washes off that week's worth of sweat and filth from his body. He anoints himself with oil. He gets dressed up. He puts on clean clothes. Why does he do this? And why are we paying attention to it? I believe that often the physical is a catalyst for the spiritual. And there's sometimes that a physical movement can go a long way in helping to cultivate hearts of gratitude in the midst of our grief. As I shared earlier, many of you know, my parents passed both from cancer a number of years ago. In, on a visit to go down and see my mom when she was in in-home hospice, kind of there near the end of her life, every morning I would get out of bed, I'd go check in my mom, I'd do some things that I needed to do around the house uh, just to kind of help out and make sure that she was okay. And then I would go for a walk. I would just get out of the house and I would walk for a couple of miles. And on those walks, it would give me space to pray, space to cry, to scream, People thought I was nuts walking down the road, just letting it go. It was a space to refresh my soul. There was a physical rhythm that helped give me some mental and emotional clarity. And it was really what I needed to help put my mind in the right framework and the right perspective to make it through the day and to help my mom. The physical is often a catalyst for the spiritual. And then spiritually, we see that David worships God. David worships, and so just as David has sought after God in the midst of his grief during a week of prayer and fasting, now following the death of his son, his seeking after God has not stopped. Just because God didn't respond the way that David wanted him to, just because God wasn't merciful in the way that he had hoped, he didn't stop trusting He didn't stop seeking after God. He didn't say, well, you didn't do it the way I wanted to. I'm done with you now. He gets up, cleans up, dresses up, and he goes to worship. He goes back to the Father. God is not less God or less good when our prayers are not answered in the way that we want them to be. He is God and he is good no matter what. And one of the best ways that you and I can hold gratitude and grief hand in hand is by running to our Father in worship, finding our rest and our hope in Him in the midst of our grief. And then emotionally, David eats and he moves forward. After worship, David sits down and enjoys the first meal that he's had in this entire season of mourning. And can we all agree that sometimes a really good meal is not just physically filling, it is emotionally renewing. A good meal shared with those we love is good for the soul. This is why so many of our holidays are marked by a meal. We get together and we share a meal together. It's good for our souls. Draws our hearts together. Now, I'm not advising that we should eat our feelings. That can get out of hand real quick, Right? But there's something to responding to God's goodness shown to us, even in a simple meal, that can do a whole lot for us in terms of our grief. David moves forward with life. This is part of why his servants seem so concerned here. So, this is something we miss with our Western eyes. David has culturally broken a lot of rules when it has come to how the Hebrew people grieve, he didn't observe the customary period of mourning which typically would have lasted for someone within royal bloodline for about 30 days following their death. And so we see that David has just blown past this altogether. He doesn't stay in sackcloth and ashes. He's not ripping his clothes and and covering himself in this way, but rather he gets up, anoints himself with oil, and he goes to worship. He eats a meal. He's moving forward. Why does he do this? I believe it's because David had an eternal perspective in that cultivating a heart of gratitude, he's able to hold his grief rightly. We see that in that last verse where he says, can I bring my son back? No. I will return to him, but he will not return to me. He trusts in the sovereignty of God and he moves forward. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us that followers of Jesus do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have an eternal perspective, a living hope that is beyond this sin-sick world. And so church, as we cultivate hearts of gratitude this season, in the midst of our grief, I don't know what your table looks like. You may have an empty seat, or someone that, for so long, filled your table with joy and laughter will not be there this year, that the light that they held is no longer there. Or maybe you do have that seat at the table with that conversation that you're dreading. And you're just thinking, man, if I can just get through the holidays. And then there's still others so that as you think about it, you're lonely. And you think about setting up a table and you being the only one there. And so you just don't bother. I don't know what each of our tables hold. I don't know what is going to come. I don't know what has been. I don't know who doesn't sit at your table this year, but I know who does. The Lord who is close to the brokenhearted and those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord who heals the brokenhearted and who binds up their wounds. Our Savior who says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. we have a God who is acquainted with our grief. And he shows us grace. And so in your grief, no matter what it may look like, choose to respond to the goodness of God shown and the goodness of God expected. And that may mean for you that there's some areas of your life in which you need to get up or clean up or dress up. Areas in your life where you just need to go sit at the feet of your Father and worship. Or you need to share a meal with someone that you love and begin to move forward with your life and rest in the promise, not a fleeting hope, but the promise that our God is with you. He is with you. If you need someone during the season to talk to, to help you process through grief, please know that our pastors and staff here would love to do that. Do not be alone because you are not alone. You have a God who is with you and a church family who loves you. So I want to let you know, um, there's a, a ministry that we started not long ago here at NCC called Grief Share. The next offering for that is going to be on January 18th. This is something that was extremely helpful for me after my father passed. The first Grief Share I ever went to was a Christmas after my dad had passed. And it was remarkably helpful. It was a space that I could just come and be frustrated and mad that my dad had died and be thankful for the grace of my God that was shown to us. Gratitude and grief do not have to be separate things. They can go hand in hand. And so as you navigate the season, know that you have a good father, a father who calls us to respond to his goodness shown and His goodness expected. Let's pray together. God, we do thank you that you are indeed with us. That you know our sorrows, you know our grief. We thank you that you are a God that we can trust in in the midst of our grief. That as we're still trying to figure it out and we're reeling, you are sure and steady. Father, I pray for our church family. God, for those in this room that have empty seats at their table this year. God, would you bring them peace and hope? Would you allow them to know in a very real way that you are with them? God, I pray for those that are dreading the hard conversations at their table. God, would you give them wisdom by the Holy Spirit? Would you help them to speak with grace and truth and love? And God, for those that may be the only seat at their table, would you surround them with the love of this community? And just remind them that they are not alone, but you are with us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are able, let's stand together. If you would like to pray with someone during this time, maybe something that I've said is is wrestling around in your mind and you're going, hey, I just need to go and pray and talk with someone. We have uh, team members available at the red table in the back by the production booth. They would love to pray with you and just talk with you. Let's worship our God together.
0: Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces making much of Jesus every day to everyone.